there's a black joke in here somewhere. Probably, but I can't think of it. Well, also, we shouldn't say it because, well, I was going to say we're a clean podcast, but fuck no, we're not a clean podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, we're not going to alienate, alienate our listeners that way. Absolutely not. No, of course not. Okay, that, that joke really went nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my fault. Yeah, well, yeah, we should probably just cut that out. We want to be free to do what you want to do. Everyone, welcome to the, the Abandoned Theater Podcast for the Speakers and Screens blog over at speakersscreens.tumblr.com. Um, I I am your first co-host person. Um, I'm I'm named Robert Beck. I write for Speakers and Screens, and w- with me, as always, is TJ Wayne. Yeah, you. <clears throat> and uh, today, you know, there's. Really not, really not much news to get into. I mean, yeah, you can talk about Batfleck if you want to, but but we're not going to do that here because all the all, all the raves right now at Telluride in Venice are pretty sweet, but we haven't seen the movies. Yeah, apparently Gravity is supposed to be really good, and mm-hmm. all those other ones you mentioned are supposed to be good. But August has been uncharacteristically kind of great. Absolutely. Um. Uh, n- not so much for big studio movies, obviously. I mean, you know, Getaway. Uh, <laughs> g- get away from that. Oh. <laughs> I wa- uh, You know what? I knew it was going to be terrible, but I wanted it to be good just because Ethan Hawke was in it. <laughs> I, love how he, I love how he's in un- un- unquestionably one of the best movies come out of the summer. Mm-hmm. And he's apparently also in, in the worst. <laughs> That's true. But um, that, just, that just means he has range. I mean, that's all it tells us. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but as far as um, I suppose smaller movies go, it th- this month has been like surprisingly good, and uh, <clears throat> we're pretty much just gonna be just gonna be talking about uh, six movies this week. I promise it won't go too long. Well, we can't promise that, but hopefully. I can promise it won't be two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, of course. <laughs> but today, the first the first film we're going to be talking about today is um, Edgar Wright's The World's End, which is the third and presumably final installment of the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, which is a loosely connected. Um, although you know the films stand alone, but they're three loosely connected films. Made by and starring most of the same people, you know. Um, first one is Shaun of the Dead, which Edgar Wright did with, of course, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Um, the three are involved in every film, and uh, you know, Shaun of the Dead was, you know, very much, you know, a, a parody of, of zombie films. Um, Hot Fuzz, which was a parody of, um, 
what, what, what the fuck was it? Like, like buddy cop, buddy cop films. Although, uh, you know, as much as parody, like as those films are in the beginning, they become quite serious as they go along. Like, yeah, like, you know, Shaun of the Dead eventually becomes a pretty serious zombie movie and um, fucking Hot Fuzz becomes a pretty serious cop movie. Mm-hmm. But as but the world's end is I just want to get it out there. I I love this film. I I have and, and I have a confession to make. I saw it twice. That is totally understandable. I almost saw it again last uh, last night after I saw the Grandmaster. I double featured it with the Grandmaster, actually. See, I almost did the exact same thing because I double featured it with Blue Jasmine the week before, but I just needed to get. It. It's an hour and a half drive from my really good theater to my house, so. Oh really? Uh, yeah, it's oh, over wow. in it's over in Kansas City. I live in, or more like in like past Kansas City, and I live in the boonies. I've never driven more than maybe 45 minutes for a, for a film. Yeah, it's a requirement if I want to see the good ones on the screen. Because World's End, I agree, is absolutely fantastic. And I I know, is it Focus Features who released Focus it? Focus Features, yeah. I don't get how that isn't a, a super wide release. I know it's an R-rated niche comedy, but it seems like there's a wide audience for that. I mean, they show the movies on... Comedy Central. At least they show comedy, uh, Shaun of the Dead on that station. Yeah. Like, I've, I've, these, and the movie did well at the box office considering its budget and considering that it was only released in, like, what, 1,600 screens? I, I was, like, shocked that they released Jobs at my local theater and not The World's End because no one saw Jobs. Well, let me explain the plot for The World's End for, Absolutely. you know, anyone that, that, that could be not familiar. So Simon Pegg plays... Uh, plays a 40-something by the name of Gary King. And for him, the peak of his life was... Um, you know, the peak of his youth, which ended up being the peak of his life, essentially, is going out with his with his four friends in a town called Newton Haven, where, which is his hometown, and attempting something called the Golden Mile, which is a pub crawl across, you know, 12 pubs, each of them very specifically and uh, very tactfully named... We'll just, I'll just leave it there. Um, from the first post down to the world's end, and um, they never finished. They never quite finished that that pub crawl. And you know, his friends have all moved on with their lives and gotten normal jobs and settled down. Um, he hasn't, but that's not exactly something you should be proud of. Mm-hmm. But because. He he won't he wouldn't tell you this, but this character has failed at pretty much everything in his life except for heavy drinking. So he he wants to accomplish at least this feat of heavy drinking. So he somehow manages to get all 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 four of his friends back together with him to try uh, to try to go on this epic pub crawl in their hometown. Um, However, it it does not it does not go as planned, and I kind of don't want to explain what happens to people who haven't seen it because it's almost this film is almost like Cabin in the Woods, where mm-hmm. like the the less you know about it, the better it pro- it might be. Um, this isn't as aggressively um, secretive as Cabin in the Woods is. I mean, the, this eventually becomes 
kind of a paranoid sci-fi thriller, but I don't want to explain what happens, <laughs> basically. But um, this film, it, it is very funny. I, I, it, 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 is, it is funny throughout. I don't think it's as aggressively funny as something like Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Or even the other sort of apocalypse-ish comedy this year, This is the End. But the thing is, it is so inventive in a way that uh, that Edgar Wright films always are. I mean, this guy is coming damn close to being one of my favorite directors living right now. And there, there are some very, there are some pretty serious themes that run through this film, like you know, um, disenfranchisement with your, with um, you know, not being able to grow up. I'm I'm sucking at hosting duties today. Are, are you doing fine? I mean, it also has alco- alcoholism. Alcoholism is uh, well, it, it is also yeah yeah. It's something that is very loosely looked into. And and nostalgia. And nostalgia. And um, but but I think I think you're hitting it on the head with the with the sort of you know, the franchise aspect of it. I mean, very early, like the first tavern they go to. Like very early in the film, um, I mean, is totally Starbucks. Um, yeah. Like, and not. I mean, granted, is every tavern in this place like that? No, but yes, in a way. Like, it doesn't have the authenticity that um, the characters are kind of looking back at. That may or may not have ever been there, but probably, you know. But it obviously has become more severe as they've grown older. Just how <laughs> phony everything is which becomes quite literal in the plot but yeah 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 i think the sci-fi aspects of it actually tie in quite well and quite tactfully um with the with with the broader and and in in some ways more socially conscious themes throughout the throughout the piece yeah i mean um shawn of the dead dealt with that in a certain uh way too sort of like the the dead aspect of uh, society and, and how the, the day-to-day can kind of make one like a zombie. Um, and the funny uh, thing and the funny thing is this all three films in this in this loose trilogy kind of have I don't want to say well they have zombies of their own or they have some level of conformity of their own like you know Shaun of the Dead it was literal zombies. In, in Hot Fuzz, I mean, I'm sorry if you haven't seen Hot Fuzz, just skip through the next minute or so if you haven't, or the next 30 seconds, I guess. But, you know, with, with Shaun of the Dead, it was the, the cult that was in the town mm-hmm. that, you know, everyone in the town was a part of that, you know, Homeowners came, came associ- out of surprise. Homeowners Association from Hell. Yeah. And uh, and with this film, that the idea of a kind of conformity is is very much present, although I don't want to explain what. Because, like I said, it, if you go into this film knowing as little about the sci-fi aspect of it, you, you would be surprised. Uh, it's best to be surprised, really. The um, I do have to say I'm really impressed by the range. I mean, all the roles are comedic, but Simon Pegg and Nick Frost really tackle completely different... Uh, shades of comedy in each of the three films like they, the play first, compl- they play completely different characters i know and it's it's kind of amazing that i mean i know simon pegg's a good actor 
and Nick Frost has proven himself to be a good actor in in the roles that he picks. Also, surprisingly athletic. <laughs> I was quite impressed with his ability to um, uh, pub brawl in this movie. That yeah, uh, so to so to speak. I mean, um, like he, like his performance in like Hulk Hogan moves at some point <laughs> in the film. Uh, the the bar stools was my favorite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have remembered that if I didn't see it again last night. But he picks up the bar stools and just starts going Mega Man on everyone's ass, and it's 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 wonderful. Also, um, also Rosamund Pike, who uh, I yeah. I love in general, and I really loved her presence in this film. She really brings it too in a way that I did not expect. Oh, absolutely! I think the supporting cast is just as impressive as leads. Um, I think I think uh, Eddie Marsan as uh, Peter. Uh, he, he was uh, he's really. He's a great actor. He was in Mike. Great Lee's actor. Ha- he, he does. He does. He does a lot of drama. He, you know, you don't see him doing comedy like this. Exactly. Like, I mean, he, he's my. He's one of my favorite parts of Mike Lee's Happy Go Lucky as a as an enraged um, driving instructor. But in this movie, he's is this little nerdy guy who like um, you know has his own demons in the way that he was bullied by these big uh, douchebags, and that really comes to fruition with his character. Um, yeah. Throughout and, the uh, film. And Patty Constantine. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and of course, Martin Freeman, who's playing the ultimate tool, which you kind of ask yourself at the beginning of the film, just he seems the most um, Starbucks-y at the beginning of the film, like just with his little uh, Bluetooth and the yeah. way that he runs his business. So um, he... WTF. Yeah. What? I said WTF. Oh, yes. yeah i mean again he refuses to i mean he's so up to date on his uh his references like with wtf with you know text speech and also just refuses to say the the word (laughs) like what wtf would stand for um it's just it it kind of make it's a great comedic performance by martin freeman he's he's quite adorable in this movie actually for his scenes um but yeah um i love the mirror between the opening montage, which seems to be featured in every Edgar Wright film and done to an amazing effect, and how that actually still mirrors the plot of the actual film. Yeah, I mean, they even go to the 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 shed where mm-hmm. they... Uh, well, well, in the beginning of the film, they go to the shed in between the fucking 6th or 7th pub. I, I don't even remember. But they go they go to the shed and they get into a fight or something like that and that same exact thing happens in this movie. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, this film is just consistent. It works like clockwork, and that's the way that's the way comedies like this should be. And uh, and and Edgar Wright he he just puts he just jam packs this movie so much. And uh, having seen it two times, I, I can say that I. I got so many clues and so many hints just from watching the second time, you know, like so many elements of foreshadowing. The, I, I think this proves, I mean, not that he needed proof that Edgar Wright is one of the most, ta- uh, the most talented comedic and action directors. I think oh, he, yeah, nowadays. Yeah. he choreographs his scenes wonderfully from, he always has, I mean, from Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim, all of them. He has always proven himself to really be able to shoot a scene that m- makes geographic sense and is exciting and hilarious. And I also appreciate that he still shoots on film, 
not that I'm the world's biggest film uh, uh, soapbox person, but I still think that it really adds a nice effect to his style. Oh, really? I didn't know that he didn't shoot it digitally. Well, I'm I'm not good at noticing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, they're projected digitally every time, but 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 still, I mean, it kind of it still feels fleshed out and is. his cinematog- his work with the cinematographer is is always incredibly strong, and his editing style is something that no one else could could ever copy. Yeah, I mean, just, I, yeah, I mean, like once again, it's just like clockwork, just bam, bam, bam. Even even the, the filling up the pints, mm-hmm. it, there, there's so much energy to just the shots of filling up the pints, and you know, not many directors would put you know any stock into that kind of thing. But you see, you see that kind of thing in just about every, uh, every Edgar Wright film. I mean, just the editing and just the quick cuts and the, and all of that. The, there's just a great energy that that just bursts through in every one of his films. Unsurprisingly, the cinematographer was Bill Pope of The Matrix. That actually makes a lot of sense. Wow, that does make a lot of sense. So, I mean, they, they, uh, this is uh, his second film working with him. He also worked with him on Scott Pilgrim, um, but obviously, they're they've uh, created two really entertaining um, and at times emotionally complex and deep uh, films. I mean, they yeah. are quite a, they are quite affecting. These are not these are not disposable films. They, I mean, I'm not saying that they're the deepest, most profound look into human uh nature but they they're not, not mindless and they're not soulless which i think it, which actually is the the theme of the films um there's in no way soulless they totally have a complete heart to them which is a love of film a love of everything they're referencing and still even through communicating all this love and all this creativity and high energy and jam-packing these films full of so many verbal puns and visual gags they never feel none of Edgar Wright's films feel self-indulgent and and yeah. too over the top. Yeah, of course, of course. Which which makes for an enjoyable film as opposed to an eye roller. So, uh, basically, we we both love The World's End. Uh, yeah, I I would put it damn near close to you know one of my favorite films. This is one of my favorite films of this year. It's 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 damn near close to the top for me, to be honest. We're gonna, I'm gonna have we're gonna have a common theme, uh, with where I rank a lot of these movies. Let's just say that I think August was pretty fantastic, except for maybe one of the movies that we'll get, we'll get to. Yeah, and uh, speaking of which, the next film we're gonna get to is not um it's not unfantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. it's the new the new Woody Allen uh. New Woody Allen film, Blue Jasmine. Absolutely. Um, uh, um, TJ, why don't you take it away? Blue Jasmine is Woody Allen at his best. Um, I really love... Recently, the, re- recent best. That, that's a good point. I'm not going to say this, it's Annie Hall or anything, but I will say that out of all, any of his 2000s uh, movies or 2010 movies that I've seen, this probably is his strongest work, even stronger than the lovely Midnight in Paris. But Woody Allen as uh, tackling the issues of class and tackling the issues of um, anxiety, tackling the issues of alcoholism, tackling the issues of a lot, a lot, a lot of dramatic irony. 
and uh, and the cluelessness of certain people, which I think is actually uh, depicted quite realistically. But the film, in in of itself, was already really good. But the film truly pushes the full by giving what I think is the best performance I've seen of this year so far. Kate Blanchett is incredibly dynamic as this film's lead, um, as the Jasmine title character. She is uh, married to Alec Baldwin, who is works on a Wall Street. Uh, he's he or he sells hotels overseas, so obviously a very lucrative job, um, and or he runs them. And he and she is obviously used to her lifestyle. She was adopted. Her sister, who is also adopted, played by Sally Hawkins, is living the opposite life. She's salt of the earth, living in San Francisco, going from blue-collar, borderline abusive boyfriend to blue-collar, borderline abusive boyfriend um, for fiancé or husband even with uh, uh, Andrew Dice Clay's character, Augie. Um, And whenever Jasmine's life starts going south and her marriage goes very south, um, she has to essentially pull herself up from her bootstraps and live with her sister for a while while she tries to get her life back together. However, the trauma of losing everything in her mind has left very deep scars in her psyche and her ability to function in the world. And I just love this movie. I was I I stopped breathing several times throughout this movie just because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I mean um Kate Blanchett, her character, um, uh, Jasmine, obviously, um, he goes through numerous um, panic attacks throughout the film, and um, even even the open even the opening scene, which is when she's on an airplane, and she's talking to someone, and how that plays out, and by the end of it, it's played for laughs, and it is funny, mm-hmm. but I mean that's the sign that this person is completely detached from reality. The the mixture of the, the comedy you're referencing and the seriousness is genius because certain scenes, um, a scene where she's talking about to Sally Hawkins' children, um, Ginger, her sister's name, Sally Hawkins' character's name is Ginger, yeah. talking to Ginger's children, and she's just going into such explicit detail and, is, and her face just completely, all the life is sunken out of it as she is this zombified woman talking to these kids, deeply disturbing them, is simultaneously hilarious and the probably going to be her Oscar clip when she's nominated for Best Actress this year because it is also incredibly frightening and depressing at the same time. Yeah, I mean, this this seems, this seems quite... I'm sorry. Just the premise of it seems quite Woody Allen. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, r- rich white people in either New York or you know, well, it's kind of subverted because mm-hmm. the rich white person from New York is uh, moving to the West Coast, and you know, San Francisco isn't a terribly bad area. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't say the apartment is ter- a terribly bad apartment, although I she's totally knows that too. Uh, Ginger's apartment is pretty nice. <laughs> it's a nice apartment, but you know, for Kate, for Jasmine, it's not. Yeah. And you know, she, she's constantly putting it down and putting uh, putting Ginger's choices down. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it it was just 
I don't know. I, for a Woody Allen film, this this is pretty unqualifyingly depressing. Absolutely. I mean, it's it it's not. Mm, how do I explain? I, I've seen so many movies lately. I have, I have to kind of recall this one, even though I really did like it. But I mean, almost none of these characters turn out okay. I would argue for for, for Ginger and Chili at the end. I think it's ambiguous, but I think that they're happier with their their, their life situation. They're happier, but, I mean, even even as Ginger meets someone, meets and and, and gets with someone very nice and just very loving, like Al, who is played by Louis Mm -hmm. C.K., in in, in a very nice role, even though it's it's quite small. Yeah, yeah. Even even that you feel like there's something there, but that ends up going south too. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 then just the last shot with Kate Blanchett is just it. You you just see that her pain is 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 a never ending one. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, I mean, they I don't think Woody Allen tries to make her all that sympathetic. No. No, and, and and in fact, the, there's a revelation by the third act of the film that will probably put a lot of audience members over the edge towards not caring about this character. And I think that I think that was a really ballsy thing to do, and a, a really risky way uh, to um, s- to subvert your expectation of a character. Absolutely, a lot of people were leaving the theater after I saw this, saying that. Well, it was good, but I'll never watch it again because it was depressing. I mean, it is. I mean, I act, I understand their point of view, but I think that it is a ballsy move, and I don't think it's going to sit well with everyone. Um, I do. I did. I did follow her character throughout the entire film, though. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I wanted her to to get better. I wanted her to come to that revelation, which actually is why I was happy for Ginger and Chili at the end of the film because Chili is aggressive he's not book smart he's low class in the way he presents himself and he has an incredibly bad temper much like her previous husband augie um yeah bobby uh Cannavale, is that how you, would you, yeah, that how you yeah. would say it uh yeah, yeah he much. plays chili and does a fantastic job his character comes to a revelation that the way he's treating um ginger is not okay and after the Al, after Al and Ginger's uh, sort of ro- romantic rendezvous goes south, when you find out some things about Al, Ginger makes the choice to go back, and Chili realizes that he's not going to be able to treat her poorly anymore. Now, granted, you could always say that people can't beat their nature, but I do not believe there's any inclination that while Chili will pick up, pick, rip her phone out of her wall and throw it in anger, that he ever laid a hand on her. Like I don't like I think that their relationship is yeah. more complex than it was with Augie, who would get drunk and smack her around a bit. Um, but even Augie's complex too, because Augie's right a lot of the times too with his uh, sort of view of the world and how he truly was. Uh, how um, Jasmine's husband Hal, played by Alec Baldwin, truly kept that family from tr- uh, succeeding. Like he he with an underhanded, sneaky kind of investment that he offered Augie and Ginger back when they were married. I, um, an editing choice I really loved about this film was the flashbacks, which there are numerous flashbacks, were not chronological. Yeah. They were kind, they were kind yeah. of given piecemeal and given in a um, 
whatever's happening, that is sort of what Jasmine's remembering. So I, I was a little confused by that at first, and it took me mm-hmm. a little while to sort of adjust and realize. I was too. Okay, th- okay, this is how uh, this is how Woody Allen's telling his story, and I thought that I thought that was also very very risky, just because he forced himself to show you things rather than tell you them. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than you know pe- people. <laughs> sort of talking about what happened in the past what do you what he's like no i'm just i'm gonna show them yeah and that was actually one of the complaints i have with the film um mm-hmm. is um andrew dice clay is his performance is is great mm-hmm. he he doesn't have as many scenes as i would like but he his character y- you get you get to know him just like that and you, you get to you you really sympathize with him too or mm-hmm. maybe not sympathize, but you you get you really get to know him. It's complicated. It's complicated, but the way he's used in two scenes, in one scene in the beginning, he's basically used to explain what happened, which is something the film, what ha- what has happened in the past, and lay it all out for the audience, which is something that the film had been avoiding up to that point. And then at another, at God damn it. <laughs> and another scene later in the film, he is used to um, sort of bring a revelation to another character, um, and and in a, sen- in a sense, kind of spill the beans for mm-hmm. one particular situation. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I but do. I feel like those were two things that could have been, um, I wouldn't say necessarily avoided, but maybe handled with more grace. With um, a better sensibility, you know, in the way that the rest of the film was, but you know, still, I thought Interdice Clay, you know, I, I still, I still think he he was very good in this movie. I think that this is something that he could do. You know, he could do kind of. I almost said a Mickey Rourke comeback, but that would be a little too yeah. much. But you know, it, I could see him in in movies, in in movies now doing stuff like this. That's more. More subtle than his, you know, dice stage presence, you know, a, a, as a comedian, obviously. He, I mean, he proves that, that he can master the the comedy because his character is quite comedic early on. But he also handles the the drama with quite grace, as in, does everyone in this film. I mean, I think the, the actor who ha- showed, showed the least range just because his character is so single-minded is Alec Baldwin. And I don't think that's a, a knock against him. I just think that... His character is more of a force that kind of – his character is the straw that broke the camel's back, to use the cliché. Yeah, he, that, he, he, that, he's, he is the force of deterioration mm-hmm. of, you know, both Cape Blanchett's persona and her sister's family and well-being. Oh, absolutely. Where the complexity comes in is with Jasmine, Ginger, and Ginger's three different – uh, romantic interest through the film as well to a certain extent um uh the what's his name Skarsgård um the boyfriend uh, oh um oh uh, Peter Skarsgård thank uh, you Dwight Westlake yes that would be he also is not as com- complex as Chiliagi and um and and uh Jasmine Jasmine but Ginger, he, Ginger obviously too yes but he does, but he does uh, present some interesting complications as the plot goes on. Because as as you're sitting there in the audience, you're like, "This can't end well." 
this like he this guy seems really cool and understanding but he will have his limits whenever he starts discovering who jasmine what her past is like and i think that again that's another interesting uh factor of the film the i have to say of everything we've talked about my favorite thing about this film is obviously kate blanchett's performance but also the ability to for her to go from elegantly beautiful to almost Joaquin Phoenix and the master, like, disturbed. Like, and the drop of a hat. I mean, like, in scenes where she's just sitting there on the, like, the final scene you're mentioning, talking to the kids, several of her nervous breakdowns. All of these scenes, just, she became, she didn't care. Blanchett didn't care. She was inhabiting the character. Woody Allen has said in interviews, when you're directing Kate Blanchett, you just get out of the way. And mm-hmm. Woody Allen is a, is a famously hands-off director with his actors. He wants his actors to do what they want. You know, he even offers them, like, if you want to change the lines, go for it. If you know something better. They don't because it's Woody Allen. But, but I mean, he's very hands-off with his actors. And with Kate Blanchett, I think he made absolutely the right decision on just letting her inhabit this character. And obviously, I, I think she's one of the best actresses we have today. I love seeing her and everything. If I was an Oscar voter, she she'd have my vote. I think I was thinking about performances based off this, like my favorite performances of the year so far. And I mean, Delphi and Hawk uh, are yeah. obvious. Gerwig uh, for Francis Ha, Franco, yeah. and um, and the No, I, I was gonna joke around and say Oz, but of course, Spring oh. Breakers. <laughs> I haven't seen Oz. I, Frank, I need, Franco and Franco and This Is the End. Yeah, they, well, I did enjoy him in that film. But yes, obviously Spring Breakers. Um, and um, Todashi Akuno in Like Someone in Love as the old Japanese man is I another. I don't see the Academy ever not ever honoring a Woody, a Woody Allen, um, a, a Harmony Korean film with anything. No, there is there is a 0% chance that Franco will get an Academy Award nomination, but he doesn't need one because people like you and myself know that he is truly fantastic in Spring Breakers. Yeah. Uh, I, I, by the way, I just bought the Blu-ray for $10. Nice. Yes, I think that was a deal. All right. Do you want to move on to The Grandmaster? Absolutely. Our All next right. film we are talking about is Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster. My first, is, my first Wong Kar Wai film, by the way. Yes, and I, I was actually thinking about that as I left the theater because I, I knew that you, have, you had not seen one yet, and I knew you were seeing it the same night. And I was like, after I finished the film, I'm like, that is either the best entry into Wong Kar Wai or the worst entry into Wong Kar Wai, and because, I haven't... Because I, I've heard it's by far his easiest film to digest. Yes, which I think, again, makes it his best and his worst. I would probably say it's it's not a bad entry into Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. However... However, Just expect I think, his, his other films to be more artsy and, and a little more difficult. No, no, absolutely. And I, I, not even difficult per se, but though he does have it. I mean, the people who do not like Wong Kar Wai, and, and this will apply to the people who don't like the Grandmaster, in my opinion, will be he is de- he he seems emotionally detached. He seems like he's willfully trying to uh, not answer questions and just confuse people. And his editing style is very um, nonsensical, even. 
Um, th those are more harsh criticisms I've heard. However, there are of course people who have more level-headed criticisms against Lone Car Y. So what However, the fuck? So what the fuck is this movie about? This movie is about the uh, It Man and the history of kung fu through the 20th century, specifically around 1938 to about the mid 50s and beyond to whenever at the end of the film. And only in the American cut, they include a boy who's supposed to be playing a young Bruce Lee. Um, so yeah, go, that, that didn't need to. Uh, uh, that didn't need to be there. Yeah, it didn't bother me, but I admit if it wasn't there, it wouldn't. It, it wouldn't have been as distracting. Um, but um, the 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 film is largely free of plot, so therefore there is no real synopsis. However, there is in the. In about the, the the final third of the film, most of it is dominated by a very plot-based story, a, a, a mini story, a short story within the film itself um, about Gong Er, uh, who is the daughter of the former grandmaster of the northern style of kung fu. Gong Yutain. Oh yes, absolutely. Thank you. And um, well, no, uh, Gong Yutain was the name of the previous grandmaster. Yes, uh, yeah. Gong Er is is his daughter. Yes. Uh, played by uh, Zi Yi Zhang, who was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, mm. uh, I believe she plays the young assassin in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But, world, if I am wrong, feel free to tweet me at, at Dallas Shaldoon and tell me so. Um, but she for sure was in Cr Crouching Tiger, which is a movie I, I love. But in this film, uh, her story is a, is a revenge story, essentially, um, against a rival kung fu master. And that, that killed her father yes i mean this is towards the end of the film but this is again a film you cannot spoil there are no spoilers to this film it's history it's, exactly um which leads me to why i love this movie however i am very intrigued to see the original cut because there are two cuts to this movie there's the weinstein cut worked in collaboration with wong kar wai yeah, yeah. Uh, which is so important which is important to note it yes, was, this was at the behest of the director. And it was not to cut material. It was to cut and add and restructure and reorder the scenes of the material to literally make a different film. Um, because Wong Kar Wai is experimental like that, and he likes to... So I have, so my prediction is whenever the wine scene's like, we need to cut the film a bit, he's like, well, fantastic. I can make a different movie with this. Um, so that so the 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 U.S. Uh, Martin Scorsese presents Weinstein cut is what both you and I saw. However, yeah. Uh, before we were talking on the podcast, I did order the the region free uh, Blu-ray of the uh, Hong Kong cut, and I, I I might get back to the world after I see that cut. I hear that the, the big difference between the films is that this version emphasizes the history. And the original or the Hong Kong cut emphasizes the love story between Gong Er and Eat Man and is more uh, dramatic in that fashion. However, Wong Kar Wai tends to avoid uh, uh, natural drama. Uh, he, he's more interested in the sort of style and the sort of look of a world, which um, yeah. which gets back to his, his, his great films, 2046, In the Mood for Love, Chungking Express, which I still think is the best entry point is Chungking Express. But in this film, he first off, I think it, we, most people can agree that it is beautiful. The, yes. The, the martial arts uh, done by the, uh, 
uh, done by the choreographer of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, is, I didn't know. It, and I believe, uh, I'm not going to say that because I could be wrong. Um, the Matrix? Maybe. Um, but yes, a famous fight choreographer for, for Kung Fu films. Absolutely. If it, if it was the choreographer for The Matrix, that would be such a great connection between this and The World's End. Absolutely. As because I'm the talking, cinematographer for The World's End did The Matrix, who, you know, the, their choreographer may or may not have done this film. We don't know yet, but yeah, it, it um, would be great if it was. Well, uh, well I'm going to say, I, I really like this movie for the most part. You know, I, I, I love far more of it than I did, than I, I, I like more of it than I dislike, basically. Um, but I, I sort of feel like with this film, it was sort of um, disjointed in a way. Like I didn't feel like this. I didn't feel like this is one story, as it was an assembly of different events. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, there's text used throughout the film to sort of, you know, fill in the gaps of history, and you know, explain what year and what what um, part of the world this is in. And that's all well and good, but I didn't feel like it necessarily connected at all to me. Maybe, um, maybe if I see the original cut, then maybe it might because you know I didn't know that the cuts were as extensive as you say they are. I just knew that th- this is a different cut of the film that the director was involved in. So you know I wasn't boycotting it the way I boycott. I I probably will boycott the Weinstein edition of um, Snowpiercer, but. But I, I gotta say, I mean, um, Ipman is is probably a very fascinating guy, but I'm not sure the movie completely sold me on him. I felt that Gong Air's story was far more captivating for me, and I'm not I I can't exactly pinpoint why, but uh, I was gonna say that story got to me um, on a more emotional level than this one did. And, you know, from what, what you say, Gong, um, I'm sorry, Wong Kar Wai is a bit of an, emo- an emotionally detached director, so that might have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But I, I almost felt like I wanted to see a movie about about the Gong family. Um, I, I wanted to see that movie more than the one about Ip Man, or at least the one, at least, at least the depiction of Ip Man that Wong Kar Wai puts on the screen. But I will say that you know where this film totally gets it right, and where this film shines is uh, obviously the fight scenes and just the 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 beautiful just cinematography of the film. I mean, I would recommend definitely seeing this film on a big screen and you know sit close to the screen if you can because this is really a movie that you can be you can get enveloped in, and. <clears throat> Even even the first the first fight scene, which is in at the very top of the movie, mm-hmm. um, in the rain, is just magically shot. Uh, and like I, I haven't felt that energized by a fight scene in a martial arts movie in I don't know how long. And there's also just an incredibly nerve wracking fight um, next to a train between Gong awesome. between Gong Air and. Uh, the man that killed her father. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is mostly a very good film. I, I don't love it to the extent that you do. I, I'm interested in seeing the original cut, and I'm definitely interested in seeing more Wong Kar Wai films. The, um, yes. Uh, Yan Wu Ping, 
is the fight choreographer for the Matrix trilogy, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the Kill Bill films. Oh, shit! That's so great. Yes, he is a very respected and beloved uh, fight choreographer. Um, and I totally... I, I see the connections to the Matrix, but much more with actual kung fu uh, and actual martial arts films like Crouching Tiger. I, I, I add the same sort of uh, sense, uh, the same sort of impact with the elegance and poetry of the of the martial arts in this film as I did with Crouching Tiger. However, I, I mean... I, I'd say I prefer Crouching Tiger only because I think that movie is absolutely uh, fantastic. And I think that this film is trying to accomplish something different, so it's not necessarily completely fair to uh, fully compare the two. Um, though the fight choreography, I felt I, I thought in both films, is very wonderful to look at, especially in the two scenes that you mentioned, but also in just a lot of the... Um, a lot of the meditative scenes. The scene where I knew that I loved this movie and even in in its U.S. cut form, was when Gong Er was, it's like the last scene that she's depicted in is when she, uh, not when she uh, ODs on opium. Uh, that was my interpretation. Um, I guess. Yeah, um, of her death. Um, but, but when she's fighting in the courtyard in the snow, like just meditating and sort of practicing the very complicated martial arts moves. Um, of her fighting style in the snow, just like as a sort of like elegy to her character and her and, and the uh, the sixty four hands. Um, yeah, and uh, and even though this isn't a very dialogue driven driven film, it's mostly you know a visually driven film. Mm -hmm. um, there's just there, there's a conversation between um, Ipman and Gong Air where Gong where Gong Air is fearing that she is comparing her life to an opera. Mm -hmm. And she's she feels that she's failed at the opera of life, and I felt that 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 that's one of the few conversations of the film. Not that this movie has many conversations, but it it's it's one of the few pieces of dialogue in this film that I feel really 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 hit me on an, on an emotional level. Oh, absolutely, and and I totally agree that it is Gong Air's sections are my favorite of the movie. Um, this uh, this cut of the movie is another example of like of what really interests me lately in movies is sort of sort of almost saying we're not going to be plot driven and narrative driven, but kind of get away from the drama and fiction influence of literature onto film and go into a more poetic direction and also a more historic, uh, a history direction. Um, I really enjoyed how the movie kind of felt like a poetic history of martial arts in the 20th century. I also felt that um, um, Eatman's uh, sections were very... They made a lot of sense with his character and his martial arts style. Oh, Wing, yeah. Chun, uh, Wing Chun is simple. Wing Chun has like three moves, uses two weapons, and whatnot. And, it, and the whole concept of it, at least as the film depicts it, I'm not going to pretend to be a martial arts expert, but as the film depicts it, is a simple form that a lot of people could mock and I, I and Tony Lung who's one of my favorite Chinese directors or uh, actors in in all the Wong Kar Wai movies he's in in Ang Lee's Lust Caution he always gives a really great reserved performance and he's perfectly cast here one because he's ageless he doesn't look 47 <laughs> he looks like he could be literally any age between 30 and 50 but I mean it's yeah. just he totally fits younger and older Eatman. But he's, also, he's, he's 51, by the way. 
Oh, he's 51, my mistake. According um, to Wikipedia, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I must have read something else. I know that Wong Kar Wai is around the same age. I think he's 57. So they're, so the, it kind of makes sense that they'd have such a camaraderie working with so many movies together, coming from the same era. Um, but I love the simplicity of his sections, which I think can be interpreted as emotional detachment. But I think that is just kind of, instead of being emotionally not there at all it's just stripped of a lot of the drama because while he does feel sadness for gong air and and the the travesties that happened uh with his family when the japanese occupied china um i think that those sections are just so plainly stated they sort of have a beauty in their simplicity and in their lack of um dramatizing it too much but and why and why i think it's so strong and why it's not a weakness is because of the complexity and drama and wonderment that we get in Gong Air section. That it totally it gives us a, two different views of martial arts. And in her sections, th- they have so much complexity in their fights. They have so uh, like you know with the, with the train fight you were referencing earlier that was thrilling. And and in her character and her motivations to get back and avenge her father like. It totally fits her section because it's her martial arts style, while the martial arts style of Eatman fit his sections. Yeah. And I, re- I really love that the way those two play together because it's more um, about ideas than about plot. And again, that reminds me of poetry. And a lot of movies that have come out this year remind me of poetry in the way that they're edited and look like Upstream Color and Spring Breakers a bit. And a movie I'm about to talk about. But, um, yeah. and, and to the wonder, of course, because Terrence Malick has kind of gone down that direction too. But yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Grandmaster. Um, I, I I will reserve saying it's one of my absolute favorite movies of the year because I don't think it's as good as Before Midnight until I see the original cut because I wanted I wanted to see some comparisons. Do you think that it had a bit of a Return of the King syndrome where it has ten different endings though? I uh, um I think that's <laughs> an interesting point, and I would agree if the film was structured narratively like Lord of the Rings movies are. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but it's kind of structured narratively, so like it has several climaxes. Like even yeah. early in the film, whenever he beats the three masters with the different styles, which was an ama- really fun to watch uh, when he was fighting all the people um, in the, at the tea house or what was it a brothel? I'm trying to remember. I, 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 I can't remember. Yeah, it was early in the film. He's fighting the three different yeah. styles, and like like that to me was a climax for his character, and he, and it just was several climaxes. Um, because it was like several stories. Again, it was more like a history as opposed to uh, five five act or three act structure. Yeah. Although uh, I mean, it felt like there was going to be a point where it ended, and then it kind of went on for about five more minutes, and then <laughs> the credits started, and then there was a, a mid credit scene because the mid credit <laughs> scene was the weirdest part of the movie. That was the weirdest part, and, and then he he broke the fourth wall. Yeah. At, at the end of it, like that. Yeah, that that didn't seem to fit with a Wong Kar Wai film or just with this film in, in general. I feel like that was almost put in um, for the American audiences, although it, it might not have been. But that was interesting. It was. I mean, the fight was cool, but it probably was my my least favorite part of the movie was the was the strange uh, because because I, I could a lot of the other strange things in the film I could. Makes I could help make sense in my own brain. I could work it out. Like okay, so this is. But like that a, was that seems separated yeah. from the whole the rest of the movie because absolutely yeah you know and like he's wearing the white hat again, which he, he hasn't worn at that point since the beginning of the movie, 
and he is just fighting guys because who the fuck knows why. And he breaks the fourth wall, and that's the end. Well, literally, he's smashing people through walls, so maybe that's how he breaks. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, but, it was yeah. a fun. It was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, really good movie. Uh, the next one is um, it's it's the last it's the last movie that we both saw. Um, Lee Daniels, the Butler, officially called Lee Daniels, the Butler. Tyler Perry's Lee Daniels, the Butler. I am at my theater. It was Lee Daniels colon tb i'm like really oh, because because they couldn't fit it on the mar it's like it, it was it was in the lintel uh, above the door and into the actual like theater like to, to where the seats and the screen was so it was like it was, it was like on the little mini marquees where they like scroll the title but they weren't scrolling so it just said lee daniels colon tb so i'm like is this film going to give me tuberculosis because mm. that's not something i want per se <laughs> <laughs> Lee Daniels, the butler. Um, this is the story of a butler. And fuck, I gotta go to. I always gotta go to fucking Wikipedia or IMDb to. Or is the is the page name is the page named Lee Daniels, the butler? Or yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Or no, it's just the butler. I got redirected from there. Fuck. Okay, well, Cecil Gaines. I don't know why I couldn't remember his name. The, Lee Daniels, the butler is the story of Cecil Gaines, who is, uh, you know, loosely based on a real person. And uh, sto- you, 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 get to know, you get to see a little bit of his youth um, until he is hired to serve the White House, where he served, um, what, what is it, four different presidents? or It was, it was like, it was, it was mit- so many presidents where they didn't even show them all in the yeah, film. Yeah, 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 it was, it was like, it was, I believe it was eight. <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember, I saw it with my grandparents. <laughs> I remember my grandpa saying, you know who was my favorite depiction? Jimmy Carter. Because <laughs> they, they just show a picture of him. Or n- not a picture, they show a video of him. But, and uh, Gerald Ford as well. They did not show Gerald Ford. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> who cares, it's Gerald Ford. <laughs> but, uh, you know, among the presidents are Robin Williams as Dwight Eisenhower. Um, uh, what, um... Cyclops is JFK. Cyclops is JFK. Sabretooth uh, as uh, as oh, okay. Lyndon as uh, Lyndon Johnson. Um, who 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 the fuck else? Um, John Cusack. John Cusack as Richard Nixon. Um, who saw that? Who saw that one coming? And uh, Snape is Reagan. Snape is Reagan. I thought I actually thought he was the best as far as absolutely. He was fantastic. He was, like he was like who great. saw who saw it coming that he would play. Reagan better than anyone else could play any of the, any of the other presidents. It only makes sense because Alan Rickman's so talented. But just if you think two more different people, I don't think that they've ever existed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so the this is basic. This is basically the story of this butler as as he serves all these different presidents, and as you know, you see you, you see him view the struggle for civil rights that went on in the 60s, the black power movement in the 70s, um, or was that, no, it was more like this, that was more like the 60s, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, um, Ronald Reagan and all of his fun fun stuff in the 80s, and uh, even going, going so far as, as to Barack Obama's election in 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that the, 
maybe the most interesting stuff in this movie involved his son, actually, who was the well, his son is Lewis, Lewis Gaines, mm-hmm. and he and and um he he began with you know his college like some college friends um to engage in peaceful protests one of which is uh you know protesting segregated public places one of which is a really fantastic scene i thought in a in a diner where they sit in a whites only section that's juxtaposed with the butler's preparing a dinner for the president and and his men and i thought that scene was incredibly just jaw-dropping almost that's probably the one great scene in the film also you know the freedom bus mm-hmm. that, okay. you, got, you got that too oh, um yeah. then then he then he joins the black panthers at or the black panthers or yeah the black mm-hmm. panthers at yeah. the black panthers at one point and that becomes uh that becomes a straining point for him and his father uh, I, I don't want to give away everything, but I found that their relationship and the development of that, I found that to be the the biggest, the most successful point of the film for me. Um, the rest of it, I you know, I didn't find it as miserably Oscar Beatty as maybe some people did. I I can say I liked more of it than I didn't, and you know, I'd say if this if this seems like something that you you you'd like. Or if you want to see, you know, Forrest Whitaker, he'll most likely get an Oscar nomination. And I would say he deserves so. Um, you know, I I casually recommend this one. I also would casually recommend it, but, I mean, I did have issues with this film. Oddly, my favorite scene was, again, personal connections, uh, the personal life of Cecil Gaines with, between Oprah and uh, Forrest Whitaker's characters as they're getting ready on his birthday, and you know, you have Soul Train on in the background, and everything's going so fantastically. Oh, yeah. And and they put on the pantsuits because she's uh, Oprah's character, Cecil's wife, starts like really um, getting into sewing to to uh, replace her alcoholism, and she, which obviously is a much better <laughs> addiction. Um, but makes him this goofy like tracksuit, and they're getting ready to go out dancing. And he's like, I've never been. I'm too old for the disco. And then they get a phone call from Lewis, you know, and, and he's just like, tells he tells Lewis off because it's his birthday and he doesn't want to deal with it. And then we have the tragedy. He opens the door and a spoiler happens. I won't say it, but he just says, no, you have the wrong house and closes the door. Like, I, like Keith Ulick is a, is a film critic I, I, I read sometimes and he mentioned that scene. And he said there's this great scene with pantsuits. And I was like, I wonder what the scene's going to be. And then I got into the, or, or like tracksuits or whatnot. And when I actually saw it in the film, I immediately was like, "Yeah, that makes sense. That scene was very powerful." Yeah, the yeah. Oprah the, is great in this. I'm going to point out, Oprah is pretty great in this. I thought Oprah is fantastic. She's the one actor I'd say who's fantastic. I liked Cuba Gooding because I felt his character was a little more dynamic than he could have been, uh, other than the raunchy um, friend. He kind of has importance with the family, and I thought yeah. that he did a good job with it. Um, Forrest Whitaker was serviceable. <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible accident. Oh, pun. oh. Um, I love for I think he's an incredibly talented actor, but in this movie, he was you know, subtle. Yeah. But he was subtle to the point where I cared about his character because his character was a good man. I didn't like. I wasn't in completely 
with his character, though, at times. See, like I, I, I understand. I mean, he he can play powerful and dignified mm-hmm. in his sleep, you know. Oh yeah. But I, but but I think he has some good scenes. Like I, I I really like the scene where he, you know, he his son comes in with his you know Black Panther girlfriend who's being completely rude at the table, mm-hmm. the dinner table, and the, there's this there's this conversation about um, Sidney Poitier, mm-hmm. and um, and you know Cecil straight up tells him to get out of the house and there's a, this big fight and you know and one of one of oprah's best parts is when she tells her son you know all you have is because of that butler yeah no totally i agree and i don't think oprah doesn't have doesn't give a sour note her performance throughout the entire film is is awesome i think it's because i feel like she's the most human character in the film where we're the parts that bothered me about Lewis and Cecil and their relationship is that they were, to me, especially Lewis, was just kind of a, a representation on whatever was popular in, in black civil rights at the time. So, like, oh, okay, at this point, he's, um, he, he, he's going to be like Martin Luther King. Oh, at this point, he's going to be like Malcolm X. So, at this point, he's full-blown black, black Panther. And that there makes kind sense. Of a, there was kind of a Forrest Gump thing with him where he's at, always at the right place at the right time. Yeah. You see, and, and I didn't believe that because this character is based off of the, the real-life butler and not actually the real-life butler. So, they have a lot of creative license. They have a lot of fiction they can add. Um, and where I just didn't... Even on a symbolic level, it makes sense, but I just couldn't believe on a dramatic level, because this film is relies on its drama. So it's not like we can just say, "Well, it's not what it's going for." Where it was, a lot of that stuff was forced to me. I like this movie more than Forrest Gump because I'm the minority of people who really don't like that movie outside of Tom Hanks. Um, but I, it just it didn't always work. I felt like it was just so symbolic that it kept a very human story from feeling human outside of what Oprah was doing and some of the stuff with the family and the way they treat one another. Okay. All right. I mostly, I mostly, mostly agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think our opinions on this one are far too off, but, um, and I didn't hate it. It's not the last stand or anything. Another course would have come this year. Yeah. Oh, I also thought Ter- um, Terrence Howard was quite good in this. I did. I agree. But it, this goes back to what you were saying in a previous movie. We, uh, maybe it was, oh, it was Blue Jasmine. Um, well, I don't think it's exactly what you were saying about that movie. But I feel like his character didn't add anything to this movie. Where, mm-hmm. like, a little bit of drama with Oprah's character, which is nice because as the movie goes on, we all want to see Oprah more. But and Terrence Howard gives a good performance as their as their sleazy neighbor because he's a good actor. But I just didn't I just didn't see like what it was doing dramatically like for the overall film. All right, all right. Um, so uh, we pretty much said it said all mm-hmm. we can say about the about that one. So let's go let's go to um, a film that that I saw that you didn't, um, but I really do think you should see because it. Is easily one of my favorite movies of the year so far, and yet another one. I mean, you know, we've we talked about some two really good ones so far, or, or three really good ones so far, actually. Um, mm-hmm. The Spectacular Now. Um, this, this you could call it a coming of age story, but I think it's a little more subtle than that. Well, uh, actually, scratch that. It's a coming of age story, but it's a great one. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and, and there are great coming of age stories that exist. I think, you know, a, a lot of them are, have been sort of watered down, but I, I think there are some, there, there's been some great ones recently. I mean, uh, the way, way back we, I talked about last week mm-hmm. and you still haven't seen it, but, mm-hmm. um, but that, that's also a great one. Um, the perks of being a wallflower. I've talked about my love for that movie on the last show, I think. Yeah. It was. Um, uh, th- this one, this one is much different than those two. Um, it's, it's, it, it's much, much darker than, than the way, way back. Um, I would say, I would almost say it's even darker than, than perks of being a wallflower. And that has a great darkness to it as well. Oh, wow. Um, well, th- there's this element of the perks of being a wallflower that sneaks up on you, wh- you know, which is really this, the, the topic of mental illness and abuse. Um, sexual abuse and that really sneaks up on you with the perks of being a wallflower is something you don't expect and if you only see the trailer for the spectacular now and no one tells you this before there there's an element of alcoholism in this film yet the word alcoholic is never ever uttered but uh you, you can just tell that um the the main character played just played fantastically by by Miles Teller, um, Soda Keeley, the main character's name, um, is on that line between okay, is does he just like to party a lot, or is is he really a functioning alcoholic, at um, and maybe not not that well functioning. Um, so basically, you know, as you can tell with the title, "Living in the Now," is a theme of this film, and that. That's definitely something that Miles Teller's character does, and you know he he feels like he's the life of the party. He has he's the most popular guy in school. Um, he he has a great girlfriend, and um and he's he's kind of self he's kind of self possessed, but he's also very charming. He kind of plays he he, he can kind of do the Vince Vaughn character. Where he's kind of mm-hmm. this this fast talking, you know, uh, fast talking kind of guy. Even though I, I like him significantly more than Vince Vaughn, <laughs> um, and obviously th- there's much more of a dramatic aspect of this film. But the thing is that you don't really see is this character, you know, because it's narrated by him at the beginning. Well, it it it's not narrated by him, but yeah. But you'll you'll see how the framing device of this film is is like when you see it. Mm-hmm. But you know he he probably he thinks he thinks he's much more popular than he turns out being as this film goes along. He he's almost like Gary King in in The World's End, where he thinks he's a shit, but everyone else kind of looks at him as a joke a little bit. You know, he's almost like a class clown in a way, but he he meets he meets this girl play he meets this girl Amy Finicky played by Shailene Woodley, and he he develops a friendship with her and he almost kind of uses her to try to get back his old girlfriend or get back at her, but you know she starts I don't want to say she starts changing him. But she starts giving him like a new perspective on 
on how he and how he is. And she's not a manic pixie dream girl by any means. She's much more developed than that, and she has she has downfalls of her own. And um, I I just want to say as as this film went along, I really fell in love with Shailene Woodley, and I really want to see oh, I really want to see more from this girl. I really think that she just really hit it out of the out of the park with this with this film. Um, she's and, had a lot of potential for a while. I mean, she's one of the best parts of the Descendants as well. Yeah, and, and did did you see all those? And, uh, never mind. No, go on. Uh, did you see all those fanboys like say she's too ugly to play Mary Jane in the, in Spider Man? So they like, it's not the reason why, but they cut her from the movie Spider Man Two, Amazing Spider Man Two. Oh, um, I haven't really been following that that too much, but I just saw it on Twitter, and it just reminds yeah. me why sometimes fanboys are the worst people in the world because she yeah. is. Who cares? I mean, I don't. She's she's an attractive person that's i don't get ugly and even if she was who cares yeah yeah but she's, but, a, she's a fantastic actress from what yeah. i've seen but uh, i, I want to say i mean i found i found this film deeply deeply moving and you know i haven't seen a whole lot from this um this director james james ponsult the last thing he did was uh was a smashed with uh, Mary Elizabeth mm. Winstead and Aaron Paul, which I hear that's really good. It's all, which is also about alcoholism, but I've heard it's a little bit less subtle about it than this film is. Okay. I still haven't seen Smashed, but that's what I've I've heard. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead is also in this film. Um, she's in a couple scenes. You know, she's you know uh, Scott Pilgrim's girlfriend. Okay. Um, um, she's in a couple scenes of this film. One of which is a dinner scene that I actually think is maybe the weakest part of the film, but you know, like be, you know, because like I said with Blue Jasmine, it kind of tells you things in more of a blunt way, where the film is really good at showing you things in the rest of the parts. But then she comes back later, and the and there's great emotional depth with depth with her. Um, Kyle Chandler from. Um, well, he, he was in Zero Dark Thirty, and um, uh, he's on some TV show. Friday Night Lights. He's on Friday Night Lights. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. He plays Miles Teller's dad, and um, he, he he's almost given one section of the film, but I'm fine with that because that's that turns out to be very, very relevant to the development of Miles Teller's character, and um, it... You'll see. You'll see when you see it. It's just he, he has a tragic side of him himself as well. And and Bob Odenkirk, who, <laughs> um, you know he he's very good at being funny, even in Breaking Bad. You know he's very good at being funny and livening up. You know, very dark sequences. He doesn't really do that in this film. He's you know he's really only in a couple scenes, but his scenes are so, um. Uh, so sad. I mean, he, mm-hmm. and not because of him, but he really brings a lot, of, a lot of humanity and a lot of drama to this film as well. And you know, I thought he was just fantastic, and I thought he made his actors better. And I, I'd like to see him do more stuff like this. <clears throat> and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee as M- Miles' mom. Um, 
Yeah, I don't really want to give away a whole lot about this movie. I just think people should see it because I, I, I think it's just great. And um, I, I really – I hope this movie has a life, you know. It, it's it's not – you know, it's it's an independent film. Not not super independent, but, you know, it's it's not a big studio film. Um, but I, I, I really hope people see it and I really hope – I, I really hope it has a life. Uh, much, much like I, much like I would say, Perks of Being a Wallflower does now, because I think it deserves it, and I think it's just a fantastic film. Um, people do. I mean, Perks of Wallflower has most definitely lived on past its limited release. It should have been a wide release film. The, the, the movie would have been successful. Um, but, but, but I've talked to quite a few people who know, who don't go see lots of movies who have seen that and love it and gone have gone to read the book and like said that this is like what they wish was out when they're kids and i've talked to kids who have seen it and really connect with it uh teenagers um yeah it's um i, I haven't seen, i want to see the spectacular now i also want to see smash yeah the performances are great and what's with pond salt working with breaking bad actors i wonder if brian cranston will be in the next one but um oh yeah i didn't realize i i, I forgot aaron paul was in the last one and bob odenkirk is in this one yeah, I, I hear the performances in Smash are great. I want to see this and that. And, and like last week, you suggested your Europa Report. And I want to catch up with that, too. Um, and Mud the, and several films that I've missed so far this year. But the thing but is, yeah, this, it sounds really good. Sorry. The thing so, is, this film, like, it almost seems like it's going to be a, a generic, you know, um, time of your life kind of um, uh, coming of age film just based on the trailer. But it's much darker and much more tragic than that i mean the ending is is ultimately very hopeful but i i'd say much of this film is 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 pretty dark and pretty oh oh you got you sent me a message oh, oh yeah yeah, no. yeah yeah um this this is uh, he just um tj tj just sent me a link of roger roger ebert's review this is one of his final reviews and one of his one of the final films that he gave four stars. So if you want if you want to use that as a reason to go, then so be it. But this film takes things like, um, you know, like like prom and like the gra high school graduation stuff that's glorified both in real life and in the movies as being, you know, the time of your life, the best, some of the best moments of your life, and for many people, including. Maybe someone doing the podcast right now. Mm -hmm. It's 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 not a it's not a great time. I mean, I found my graduation to be really empty, and that's exactly how it's depicted for this character in this film. Everyone everyone else is feeling great around him, and his graduation is just empty. And I've never seen that kind of thing depicted in a film. Well, not that I never have, but I have not in a long time. Would you say that of all the movies we've talked about today, it's your favorite? Um, I'd put The World's End above this, but okay. I'd say this goes in my top – both of those go in my top five or my top four or, or whatever favorite films of this year. I, 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 I was just blown away by this. Yeah, you just sound really passionate about it. It makes me want to see it. Yeah, I mean there, there, there are just these scenes between – even just these small, simple scenes between – Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley are just so beautiful and so simple, and they they have such mag magnetic chemistry 
that I, I couldn't help but well up a little bit, even just on the simplest scenes between them. I just found to be more beautiful than most of the things I've seen in the movies lately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just think this is a... I almost said this is a spectacular film. But this <laughs> it's is, spectacular now. Yeah. And uh, later. But this is this is an incredible movie. And I think it really rises above being a teen movie, being a high school movie. I really think it's something that a lot of people should see. We can never have enough good uh, high school movies that are done well and complexly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love these kinds of movies when they're done well. And sometimes they're not. I mean, Miles Teller, uh, the only other film, the only, only other films he's done that I'm incredibly familiar with is Project X and 21 and Over. And, um, oh, he was in the Footloose remake. So, you know, he, he seems to be in movies like that. And he's playing almost a subverted version of those kinds of characters. It, you you see the the darkness that those kinds of characters would have in a much more intelligent movie like The Spectacular Now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The um, another movie that I wasn't getting this one mixed up with, but that Ebert gave four stars to um, posthumously. I mean, uh, was. At any price, I believe, with Dennis Quaid. But yeah, yes, yeah. Which uh, it's fifty percent of Rotten Tomatoes. But um, I hear it's a, a, a the fifty percent who like it say it's a really strong drama. It's another one I'll probably catch on Netflix or something at some point. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to go. Probably spend lots of money to go drive an hour and a half and see it. But yeah. Well, that um, came that came out a few months ago, I think. Nice. It, it, is it on Netflix already? No, I don't think so. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm looking at its Wikipedia right now, and it, just came, oh, okay. out, it came out in April. Yeah. I'll most definitely catch up with Spectacular now. Um, um, it just it seems up my alley in terms of really well-done dramas, because I like a variety of movies, but you know nothing's like a truly well-done drama. So. Yeah, and uh, we, got, we got one more film today. Um, I will finish with Ain't Them Body Saints by David Lowry. David Lowry is a relatively young and new filmmaker. I mean, no, I mean, I think it's safe to say he is young and he is new. He edited Upstream Color. Yeah, which, yeah, I, I, I knew that. <laughs> which makes perfect sense with seeing it with this movie. Not that the two movies share theme, because they don't. Um, I don't know. Maybe they do. I'd have to think about it more. But they truly both, like I was saying earlier with the Grandmaster and also with Spring Breakers and To the Wonder, shares a very poetic sensibility on giving information through picture. Um, I think that the three main actors in this movie are, you know, I, I'm, I'll talk at length about, well, not at length, but I, a lot about how wonderful um, the cinematography and the score are in this film, but the true strength in heart is Rooney Mara, Casey Affleck, Ben Foster, and Keith Carradine. The four of them give wonderful performances that could feel like to some maybe standard uh, outlaw running from prison. Casey Affleck's character is escaping from prison to get to reunite with his wife Rooney Mara. 
and his daughter, but the police officer, one of the police officers who helped arrest him in the first place, played by Ben Foster, uh, has fallen in love with Rooney Mara's character and wants to keep that from happening. And also Keith Carradine, another bootlegger from the area, um, outlaw, would like to keep that from happening because he doesn't think that Casey Affleck's good for Rooney Mara's character. Um, Casey Affleck plays Bob, Rooney Mara plays Ruth. Um, he doesn't believe Bob is good for Ruth because obviously Bob is an outlaw. And if, and if Ruth goes to Patrick, Ben Foster's character, then maybe she'll have a, a good life. But the film is a very meditative look on morality and on the sorts of outlaw running from the law, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, because at the very beginning of this movie, Ruth and Bob feel like Bonnie and Clyde. It's, they're both outlaws. They're both in this together. And in their final shootout before Bob is arrested, Ruth shoots out the window and actually injures Ben Foster's character, Patrick. So, but, you know, the assumption is that it was Bob who did it. So, so it kind of adds a complex flair. A lot of the wonderful, um, a lot of the wonderful cinematography of this film is reminiscent, of course, the overused comparisons, Terrence Malick. Um, yeah. But his, his, his 70s films, mostly. Yes. No, it's, I mean, it's a little bit Days of Heaven, but even more Badlands with, with Martin Sheen and Sissy SpaceX characters having similarities to Bob and Ruth here. I'd say but, um, I, I've heard that this has, this has mostly – this was mostly inspired by, you know, a lot of 70s new Hollywood directors like Robert Altman. And like City Represent. Uh, yes, absolutely, Robert Altman, and it's great that Keith Carradine is in this because he was in Robert Altman's bootlegging movie, um, uh, Thieves Like Us, which I would say thematically is more similar to this than Badlands. Though I do get the connections w between Badlands and this film, um, and I think this film succeeds in its attempts to sort of modernize that new Hollywood aesthetic. Because while it may feel like those old movies, it still feels very modern and now. The issue with the movie is, and why it's not completely beloved, is that it's very quiet. And that quiet has, in my opinion, been misinterpreted as... Uh, Emotional detachment? Yeah, shallowness even. Like, there is no theme to this movie. It's just, here's some people, here's some pretty pictures, the end. And I think that, like Malick's recent movies... Which again, there's that comparison, and like similar, and you could even say like to a certain extent, Wong Kar Wai, maybe more in, much more in the mood to, uh, for love than the Grandmaster. It's just quiet. It doesn't have that sort of obvious signpost um, way that it depicts plot because there. Is, I mean, the plot is there. This movie is more plot driven than I'm giving it credit for, but the movie also. It's just about those quiet moments between um, ben, uh, ben Foster's character teaching uh, uh, Patrick, teaching Ruth and Bob's daughter how to play guitar. And like there's a lot of power in those moments or the way Bob holds Ruth as the police are coming in to arrest him. And as he's contemplating just going out in a blaze of glory, you know, weighing the pros and cons. Like it's just those quiet moments that to me, for me, were very emotionally affecting that are not emotionally affecting for others. And if it if the film's not hitting you in that way, then 
you know, it, it's probably an example of it's not for everyone. But I found this movie quite beautiful. And I also appreciated uh, Keith Carradine's song uh, that he performs in the closing credits. And uh, because it kind of reminds me uh, of uh, Hal Ashby's another, another film from the same era, Hal Ashby's uh, Bound for Glory, um, which is about Woody Guthrie. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was Keith or if it was his brother. Uh, rest in sure. peace. David Carradine? Yeah, I think it was David Carradine. The, the, I mean, the whole Carradine family is talented. Um, but Bound for but it reminded me a bit of Bound for Glory and that sort of like the feeling that that movie gave off too and his cinematography in that film is beautiful. I mean, Roger Ebert called that, like, that was the year after... Um, Barry Lyndon came out. People are calling Barry Lyndon, even the, the haters, one of the most beautiful movies ever made. And like, this is like the early 20th century America version of Barry Lyndon. Yeah, it was David Carradine in Down for Glory. Um, but um, but it, it, it sort of reminded me of that, which is just another connection to the new Hollywood era. Maybe another reason that a movie really connects with me is that I've watched so many, I watched so many new Hollywood films over the summer that I felt like this was a natural modern interpretation and a very well done one so i'll be looking forward to future movies that david lowry does yeah good, good or bad because I, I feel like he at least shows a lot of potential not only as a filmmaker but also as an editor as seen by his editing in um in uh his editing in uh, upstream color supposedly weinstein he, he talked to harvey weinstein and you know, weinstein was like i recommend you cut these two scenes you don't have to, but I recommend it. And then David Lowry did it, and he says, wow, that makes my movie flow a lot better. So it kind of shows us sometimes maybe Harvey Weinstein has the right idea. Yes, yes, sometimes. Yeah, I well, mean... Um, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very excited to see this movie. Um, it was playing at my, at my local art, art house theater for a week, but now it's not, and I missed my chance to see it in theaters, but hopefully I'll see it on VOD or... Or is it on video on demand? I, I don't know. Yeah, I watched it. I just on my on my cable. I just went to on demand and ordered it. It was oh, okay. Which I've done with several movies this year. Yeah, it's available. I mean, it's, it's, I recommend it. I might try that. If not, I might just wait till it's on on DVD or you know or, or somewhere. But uh, mm -hmm. I, I I know I've I've seen Rooney Mara in only three movies in her career. Um, you know her the two films she did with David Fincher and um, Side Effects this year, and I love her in all of them. Mm -hmm. Me too. So I'm I'm just expecting her to be you know also great in this one and in she also her has a very and in her actually southern accent. Really? I mean, all the characters have that sort of like backwoods accent. Yeah, and oh, yeah. Casey Affleck has proven that he can do it well. I mean, he he, he did it well in in Jesse James. Yeah. Um. But. Um hers surprised me because it, it just I, I thought at first like oh man this is going to be awkward but you forget it's Rooney Mara so again showing that she totally kind of goes into her character she goes in deep and she always has a she always gives a good performance that I've seen as well alrighty <laughs> okay well uh, I think we're just about done done for the day mm-hmm yeah um, managed to fit in six movies in an hour and a half I, th I think that's pretty good with how long-winded we can be. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, 
until next next month or in a few weeks um we'll see you guys then when we do another podcast which will hopefully be in the next few weeks or another month it'll happen it'll it'll hopefully happen um all right <laughs> i'm robbie back and goodbye dj Wayne, and goodbye goodbye